Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Little piggies stuffing their mouths. Why is everybody so fucking happy? Welcome to the official Succession podcast from HBO. I'm Kara Swisher. I report on tech, power, and money. And to me, there is no show that tackles all that better than Succession. He's a sociopath, but he wouldn't be a good torturer. Not because he doesn't have the stomach, but he just doesn't have the patience. Let a thousand sunflowers bloom, Romy. I want to start a business with you, brother. I'm the only one who wants to set up a business as a business and doesn't want to fuck anyone. On the podcast, we're unpacking every episode on this fourth and final season with succession writers, producers, and directors. We're also tapping experts beyond the world of the show to find out just how terrifyingly accurate succession really is. Today, we'll pull back the curtain on the first episode of the season with the series creator, Jesse Armstrong, and executive producer, Frank Rich. And later, I'll be joined by journalist Ben Smith, formerly editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, and now with a new publication called Semaphore, who has some thoughts about Kendall, Shiv, and Roman's business strategies. This premiere episode, titled The Monsters, was written by series creator Jesse Armstrong and directed by Mark Mylod, and it's a doozy. After kicking his kids to the curb at the end of last season, which was probably a smart move, to be honest, Logan gets ready to sell Waystar to Gojo, the tech startup run by eccentric billionaire Lucas Matson. The estranged Roy kids are in Los Angeles starting their own media company called The Hundred, but they quickly scrap the idea to get back at their dad and buy the one company he wants most of all, Pierce. Congratulations on saying the biggest number, you fucking morons. Joining me now to talk about this premiere is series creator Jesse Armstrong and executive producer Frank Rich. Thank you both for being here and congratulations on an incredible start to this season. Thank you. Thank you, Kara. Is that off script or is that real? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. No, it's good. It is incredible. But like there's a ton going on with this premiere that I want to talk about. But first, we need to obviously address this is the last season of Succession. Talk about, the Jesse, the reaction in the writer's room when you told everyone it would be the end. And, and I'd love to know why from your perspective. Yeah, no, it was – so it wasn't a declaration. The, the way we operate is often that I'll go in with a bit of a proposition and talk to my fellow writers about it. So it was always offered as a, I think this is it. What do you think? So it was a joint decision. It was my suspicion and my pitch that this should be it, but it wasn't a like, this is it, we're all getting the, the hell out of Dodge. Mm-hmm. It was a debate. And we all had different feelings. And even I remember late on looking at some shapes of the season on the wall and someone saying, huh, there could be this whole other shape where we did this and just having another like a wobble on the last day. But I think we all we all feel really satisfied with the shape of the season. Um, So sad, but I think it's the right thing to do. Were you worried about going on too long? Yeah, worried about going on too long. Not not like in a a way in a theoretical sense. I don't think there Mm -hmm. is like a perfect 
number of seasons for a show, it's it's bespoke, right? And I guess it's weird. This show has a bunch of things that I think the dynamics could just go on and on and on and we'd enjoy writing them. But there is a, a business, cultural, political heart to it, which although it's not necessarily everyone's favourite element of the show, it is mm-hmm. the sort of heartbeat of it. But if we try to extend the succession business stuff beyond its natural length, I think people would start feeling that we were a bit of a zombie, that our the body lived on, but the heart had gone. True, but, but truth is actually now more interesting than fiction. I mean, a lot of businesses, of course, as you're watching them, I'm not going to name any of them in particular, Paramount, News Corp. But um, <laughs> in any case, uh, Frank, how do you feel about the season to be out in the world for fans to know it's the end? Look, I think there's, uh, from the people who have loved the show, there's a real sentimental, uh, just I'm hearing it even from friends of mine, a swelling about losing these characters as an ongoing part of their lives. On the other hand, there's a, a sort of getting with Jesse's point about how the decision was reached. I'm realizing there's a little bit of misconception about how this works. Like people say, oh, you decided it was the end, so you changed the ending of the season. And mm-hmm. um, I say, no, the, if you look at the previous three seasons of the show, all of them could have been the ending of the show, mm-hmm. you know? And it's not like now, spoiler alert, we're not killing everyone off in an earthquake in the final episode. But I think I'm also feeling, while people are sort of sad about it, they respect the storytelling, they respect what Jesse has done, and they know that we're not, we're unlikely to do something stupid or silly or gimmicky, you know? They'll Mm -hmm. decide for themselves what they think of how we go out, but I think people understand it. And I felt a a line of Jesse's in an interview uh, that uh, he gave uh, to Rebecca Mead of The New Yorker discussing uh, the end of the show, it is called succession. At some point, there has to be some yeah. kind of resolution to that. And I think people, I think a lot of viewers understand that. Yeah. Tell me about the experience of writing this premiere, knowing that this was a final season you'd be writing. Did it change the approach for you and the writers? Yeah, I don't think it's changed. I think we all, hopefully we always have a good level of ambition for how much we can mm-hmm. get in the show. Hopefully it doesn't feel forced and the insults should feel natural in the characters' mouths. Oh, no, they're fantastic. Thank you. It, we, we haven't changed it, I don't think. Maybe towards the writing the end of the season, you start feeling that more, that thing more of like, what's an appropriate level of not sentimentality, but an appropriate level of respect for the story. You don't want to get so high on your own supply that you think it's this uh, extraordinary work, which everyone is interested in every single detail of, but nor Mm -hmm. do you want to um, not pay sufficient respect to the the characters who you've created and people's investment in them. So I think at the beginning, it just felt like a shitload more of work and like, is this going to be any good? And you get, and you're Mm -hmm. um, always really scared. It was more towards the end when you start being, you having to be aware of being self-aware and is that cute? Sure. Is, uh, are we paying too much? Are we trying to nail everything or are we leaving things unsatisfactorily undone? Well, it's interesting because people do remember the last shows of a lot of shows, um, you know, Six Feet Under and things like that. I'm trying to, because that's what you remember despite having watched it for a very long time. It's often that wasn't a good end. That was a good end. And I think it's now the 50th anniversary of MASH or some, there's some number, there's some yeah. huge number um, where people, rem- I remember that to this day. When you think about it, does that change the way, Frank, how you think about the ending? 
I mean, I agree with Jesse. I think you have to be true to the characters and true to what you've done before and not overthink it beyond the way you'd normally think hard about where you're mm -hmm. ending up dramatically and emotionally. And so I don't think it's, it, it's not part of the thinking of the show at all that, oh my God, we've got to put a gold frame around any episode really and say, this is right. a very special episode or finale. And, uh, you know, obviously I'm not an objective observer, but one thing I do feel about what we've come up with, it is organic to the story. You know, there's no Deus Ex Machina that's going to come in and say it was all a dream or some stunt where it turns to black or everyone ends up in jail. You turn around, yeah. I remember that Yeah, one. yeah, that and one. so uh, it's just not even in the thinking of the writers of the show. Right. But it's scary. It's scary. It was, Frank says, it's not one shouldn't think about it and it's not useful to think about that but one does right you know like you say i remember the mash ending or you know watching it in the uk i remember six feet under which i admire beyond almost anything and and, and you know it just really 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 matters and i think we have always we've always thought a lot about the endings of the season and we've also thought about the the last shot and the last episode of this show from a couple of seasons back mm -hmm. not that we've not that we've never changed or it's always mm -hmm. been set and we've known where we're going but we've always been thinking about it and heading a certain direction but it is scary and it does make you have that feeling of like am i going to put a foot wrong because i'm getting too self-conscious absolutely um let's talk about this episode in particular because it's the beginning episode of this season there's a significant new dynamic happening at the start shiv kendall and roman are working together instead of fighting each other it's them versus logan what lingering effect did Kendall's confession in Italy have on the bond? Did that change their relationship or were they sort of hopped up on joining together to call themselves the resistance or whatever the heck they called themselves? Yeah, I think, you know, like a enormous bomb blast, there's still the radiation of the warmth of their bonding on uh, at the end of the last season is still there, right? And, and sometimes that happens in relationships when something very significant happens, it changes the dynamic for good. And that's, I think, where you find them. Yeah. And Frank, when they have this relationship, it's always sort of for the second. You never know because they all seem to be so insecure and so unloved that they can't stick together. It feels very ephemeral, even when they're getting together to talk about the hundred uh, or whatever they're doing. Right. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that's sort of amusing in the first episode is, the, uh, I think you describe it a great way, Kara, you know, it, it's very fragile. It's very tentative. They're always looking to see who has the, the shiv, lowercase shiv, to stab somebody in the mm -hmm. back. And so the kind of faux bonhomie as they try to band mm -hmm. together, I think is very funny. I also think very funny is the revelation that just from their plans, we can see they actually, their father at some level is right. They don't know shit about business. They do they not. Really, they don't. They have this project that, you know, Kendall rattles off as being this kind of pretentious thing. And then, you know. I have been in that meeting, Frank. I know ahead. you have. I know you have. You And you think, Roman, really, is a part of this? And then, yeah. then you know, Shiv sort of turns on it on a dime. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, people are making calls, uh, phone calls out of uh, the, the uh, earshot of the others. Mm -hmm. And so it's this kind of delicious tension between this alliance and the reality of their very tangled emotional and familial relationships. I want to know how far down your list of investments you would put the hundred. Oh, wait, I've heard <laughs> way I, down. I, I have been in front of so many rich tech people who want to start their own media company. 
um, and have tried to start it. And <coughs> there was one, Mark Andreessen had one, Andreessen Horowitz, and they called me up and said, we're going to kick your ass. And I was like, <laughs> first of all, it's a shitty business. Second of all, it's real hard. Media is not easy. Well, that's, we, I, we tried hard on the 100. Oh, it was perfect. You and Frank have got seasoned eye on this, so you've mm-hmm. seen how shitty it is. We didn't want it to be total bullshit. Obviously, mm-hmm. most new media <laughs> products don't They had work. all the total bullshit words, you know, you had them there. The hundred is so perfect. It's it's exclusive and like insecure at the same time. Good. Yeah, we, we tried our hardest. All right, there you have it. The episode is uh, a fight between Logan and the kids. They don't actually speak till the very end. But even then, Logan only says one sentence before hanging up on them, which I thought was devastating. Congratulations on saying the biggest fucking number. Um, He's right from a business point of view. And also it gets to him and he has to call the kids to tell them that you loser. You know what I mean? Which means he's the loser in a lot of ways. How did you think about that, uh, Jesse? I guess it's a, a line we tread a lot, which is the great luminaries who you speak to and you know. How good are they? How brilliant are they? How good would they be if they got put down to zilch again and had to start again and had to choose their investments? I'd be really interested to know what you'd say. I think lots of them are really good and some of them are just lucky and sometimes it's a mixture, right? Yeah, stupid is what I think of a lot. You know, I mean, honestly, when something happens, they're like, what happened? I'm like, they're not smart as you think they are. You know what I mean? And that's what was interesting is that one of the things that I think gets to Logan, if I had to think about it, is he's a very good business person. You know, he really is. And you you can't do anything when the idiot enters the room, right? And it has a crazy number I remember when I was doing one of my media startups, there was another media startup that kept trying to overpay my employees. And when the employee said, I, can you match this? I said, I don't even want to pay you your current salary. So, <laughs> I, you know what I mean? And you don't know what to do when that happens. So, Frank, you know, you're in the news business. When this, when this frothiness gets ahead of itself and you have these good business people like Logan, it's very frustrating. It's, that's where I think it comes from. Yeah, I, I do. And look, Logan has built, granted, it's an old media pre-digital business, mm-hmm. even though it has digital stuff now. Yeah. But in some ways, people forget in this age that those so a lot of those principles apply. So take the hundred, mm-hmm. whatever the product is and whatever form it takes, whether it be digital or written on tablets, there has to be some passion about it that people want to buy it and use it and read mm-hmm. it. Uh, Logan understands that. He lo- understands about ATN and his other properties. That's completely missing from the kids. Mm-hmm. It's almost to me like it's an infantilization. You know, when you're a child with siblings and your parents, I don't know, leave the house for three days and you decide you're going to make a lunch and put out placemats mm-hmm. and act like you're grown ups. That's what they're doing. I mean, they go after Pierce, which they, it's not even clear any of them really read, you know, I mean, but they're, and, uh, there's not one talk about a story that's in any of their publications. That's what's fascinating. And the idea of an audience, you know, I know people who read the Atlantic or whatever, they don't know what that is because they don't read the Atlantic themselves or the New Yorker or whatever. And so I think it really captures the difference between someone like Logan who created an empire that may be aging and, and a bit antediluvian with a bunch of, you know, kids who are born on third base and don't know what the hell they're doing and are guessing, and worse, are so arrogant, they think they're smarter not only than Logan, but than much of the world, mm-hmm. including their, the people they're yeah, dealing, making deals with. Yeah, because they have the money. With. And so they, they, the best line was, economist meets masterclass meets Substack. Because Substack never right. meets economists. Never, never, never do they meet. Right, right, exactly. Or the economist never also meets masterclass, which is kind of funny. That was a fantastic line, I have to say. And it's no mistake, I guess, that they we see them 
obsessing about the logo. And, you know, if you had them in a meeting, they'd know that the logo was not the most important part of the business. But it's like those dictators <laughs> who end up spending all their time designing the, the air palettes for their elite their elite forces. And I, I once did a development on a movie with a with with somebody who in the towards the end of the notes meeting was like, these are all really good notes. And um, where are we going to have the premiere? And you, <laughs> you think, oh, man, we're ne- <laughs> if you're thinking about the premiere, we're never making this movie. <laughs> yes, that is correct. That is where did you have a premiere? Well, it never got made. <laughs> all right, there you have it. Um, so, so much of this episode is very funny, actually, watching it. But Logan, is really uh, carrying a heavy, sad weight. I think, you know, you could feel him and he doesn't like even being at his party. Um, he's been feeling this since the break with the kids. Even though he abhors them, he misses them in a weird way. How do you look at that? Because he really, I, I mean, uh, Brian Cox is doing an amazing job. At, he has everything and almost nothing at the same time. Monsters. Meet the fucking monsters. Yeah, I think it's, it's something we've often talked about in the writer's room, mainly in relation to the kids, the, that, that centrifugal force, the, the sense that the, the fire is only burning when those elements are all together, however much they yeah. hate the, the dynamics that emerge when they're all together, that it's sort of the only thing that makes them feel alive because it's the only thing that really feels real. And I guess with this time we were, you know, we were thinking about it a little bit more from Logan's point of view, that although they piss him off and he thinks they're not what he would want and their their affluence and the stuff that they've necessarily grown up with, the softness um, makes him recoil. Everything just feels a little bit empty when they're not there. And I guess that was the feeling that that we were interested in for him. And Brian did it brilliantly, didn't he? Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot As a writer on the, and producer of the show, Tony Roach has said often, you just look at Brian's face, even without dialogue, that just that shot of him looking out the window mm-hmm. at the party with the people who do, quote, love him still, whom he think regards as monsters mm-hmm. uh, and fools and worse— it's very poignant for all that he's done to engender this uh, isolation. He creates a humanity that you care about him anyway. Yeah, and the contrast between his dinner scene with Kendall last season, which was so cruel, you know, he, he's, he's sort of reaping mm. the cost of that in a lot of ways. But there's this special, speaking of poignant, there's a scene in the diner where he, he leaves his party, calls his security guard his best friend, which I've heard rich people mm. do this, you know, and it's sad Jesus. for my pilot. They're my sad. friend. I'm like, mm, you pay them, right? Oh, and, or anybody gosh. who works for them, they're like my friend. And I'm like, anyone who's paid is not your friend, as far as I can tell. But he's so lonely in this episode, even with all these hangers on. And I, it's almost like the suffocating golden prison in a lot of ways that he lives in. And also he's got that thing which is that he's embarking on a sale and he, and he's, I guess you would say, correctly divined that now is the moment to sell for maximum advantage. So he is, he's making a win, but, you know, mm-hmm. those Sumner, Redstone, Murdoch-style deal makers, I don't think they love anything quite so much as the deal and and, and, and the, the thrill of that, mm-hmm. that chase. So I think that's seeping through to all parts of his life, right? Mm-hmm. To let down, meaning. 
yeah, he's getting a gold star in terms of the billions he's going to earn, but he's selling up and that feels like it's a sort of ending. It's so sad. And then he, so he's built this huge market and now uh, he's selling it. So it's like selling your, it's King Lear dividing up his empire in a Mm -hmm. way, but he can't, he doesn't even have a Cordelia who Mm -hmm. still makes a case for him, you know, and, and, and so he must, he must feel fairly worthless at some level. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he enjoys money that much Mm -hmm. you know i think some of the kids do but i think he's one of these people that if he were living in a less luxurious place might not even notice the difference for a while unless creature comforts Mm -hmm. were sacrificed in some way yeah i they are really they're they're really cashmere prisms i don't know how else to think of them um because they get they're so suffocating these these sets are so suffocating in so many ways what's your each of your favorite scene in the episode or the moment that sticks with you uh why don't you go first jesse i think it probably is that scene in the diner which is unusual for me but i remember thinking of such a scene after i'd been to pitch the show in la almost seven or eight years ago and Mm -hmm. um i came back through new york to do something else and i went to a diner and i remember thinking about the loneliness of somebody one of the interesting things about logan is in some ways he's so complete and so invulnerable but just in that line that frank mentioned he's pretty childlike He's still trying to understand the world. He's got no vocabulary, really, for thinking about um, Mm -hmm. human relationships. So that's quite tough when you're thrown back on your own resources because he's really got, he hasn't got any way to think about how he feels. What are people? Um, Like, they're economic units. I'm 100 feet tall. These people are pygmies. But together, form a market. Okay. Right. What is a person? It has values and aims, but it operates in a market. Uh, Marriage market, job market, money market, market for ideas, etc., etc. Uh-huh. So everything is a market? (laughs) Everything I try to do, people turn against me. Nothing tastes like it used to, does it? Nothing's the same as it was. I would say it's one of my favorite scenes in the entire history of the show. Mm -hmm. And one other element of it is the sense of time passing and of age. So, you know, nothing tastes like it used to. Mm -hmm. He can't even figure out what kind of tuna sandwich he might want to order. And it's incredible. It's a very brief scene in a, you know, in a diner on the Upper East Side on Madison Avenue. And it's so beautifully acted, including, by the way, by Scott, who plays Colin, mm-hmm. you know, who's never had a scene like that really in the show no. of that size. And those relationships are very strange between wealthy people and especially their bodyguards. I've, it's really interesting dynamic. They become fiercely loyal. And yet at the same time, I always think, what do they actually think of these people? Mm. Even though most of the episode is focused on these fights between Chiv, Kendall, Roman, and Logan, I have to say the scene that hit me hardest was the end of the episode between Chiv and Tom. Let's play that clip. I wonder if there's even a way through this. Right? Yeah. You know, I I wonder if we might have run out of road. I mean, we we were going, going to have a big talk. Well, I, want, I wonder if we might want to make it official, you know? But do you want to talk? There's some things I wouldn't mind saying and explaining. I don't want to 
rake up a whole lot of bullshit for no profit, Tom. But I feel... I, no, I do just feel... stop. I don't think it's good for me to hear all that. I think it might be time for you and I to move on. Oof, no profit. No mm, profit. Mm. What a line. Um, it's really painful to listen to the way Shiz's voice cracks when she says, I don't think it's good for me to hear that. After the last season ended with a big double cross for Tom, I was expecting all a fight, you know, between them. But this is sort of a whimper. This is sad, quiet, people just giving up, no effort, no energy. How did you pick this tone? Because you could have had a big old knockdown, how dare you cross me and betray me? I shall take revenge upon you, that kind of thing. How'd you resist that? First of all, you've got to do a show, Carrie, because that was extraordinary. Emmy. I just won the <laughs> Emmy right there, right there. Bang. Um, I guess it flowed out of thinking about a person like Shiv, how would she respond to a betrayal like that? And I guess, as we talked about it, the very strong sense we got was she it was almost like she made a choice at the end of the last season that she wasn't going to directly say, hey, I just saw you say, you, you've double-crossed me, you piece of shit. And as soon as she didn't make that decision, it's almost, it felt to us like, to maintain her sense of self-worth, she almost couldn't face it. And if she'd made that choice not to have it out, and in some ways to regain some power by having a mm -hmm. secret over him, which is that I know uh, what you've done, then a whole set of things follow and uh, and you end up in a much more deadened i mean there's you know when she's having a pop at him about his uh, dating life you i think you feel mm -hmm. this furnace of resentment which is going to pop up and, and as just as you say you know the, the what's so great about the performance by sarah is you i think you feel the depths of hurt and anger there and in their in their being contained they may be a more eloquent and i'd like to change my mind because i'd forgotten that this scene was in this episode and this is mm -hmm. my favorite scene of the episode okay frank this is the first time they talked about what happened in italy which seems unusual that, that they keep everything down shoved down in their throat so much yeah i think that, that that says something about them as people as well as their relationship it's hard for them Clearly, it's been hard for the previous three seasons for them to speak directly mm -hmm. about emotions. It's all through transactions or transactions, particularly point. involving yeah. Logan. And I would say, without spoiling anything, this is just the beginning of a protracted conversation with these with these two characters. And and I don't want to say any more, but it's it's this is not you know this is obviously not the end of uh, Tom and Shiv's story. Yeah, here. So, but they've been on shaky ground for a long time, as I said in Italy before that. From the wedding, they were shaking ground in the wedding. Yeah, was Tom's betrayal the straw that broke the camel's back? From your perspective, Jesse? No, I mean I think the the relationship has always been. Well, it's an interesting relationship because it has a number of different facets and it, some of it is transactional. And I guess that's why as a, maybe as writers and as an audience, one can't quite leave it alone because it's not quite just one thing, you know, and maybe, you know, as you hold it up to the light, sometimes you're like, you know what, these two are just a pair of fucking jerks who are after money and power. And then because of the subtlety of the performance and hopefully some of the, you know, what we do in the writing, you look at it at another angle and you're like, ah, but there, it kind of is something there. And maybe they could, if in another circumstance, there could be something there. So I guess that's what makes it interesting to us is that, and then you get into a real kind of what does love mean thing, because mm -hmm. it is so transactional at other times. And yeah, so um, I, I go through stages of thinking the show is about all different kinds of things. And occasionally I've felt like, wow, maybe the show is just about Shiv and Tom sometimes when I watch those scenes. 
well, it's about power dynamics, too. And even though the marriage is ending over this particular betrayal, do you think what Tom did makes Shiv respect him more? I mean, it was a good power play. She didn't think he had it in him, right? Honestly, I don't like saying things which I I feel tread on the toes of other people's Mm -hmm. interpretations because they all seem kind of valid. But I would say yes, and it's like a very brutal, one of those things you don't Mm -hmm. want to admit to yourself. Mm -hmm. Like, it's very binary. She'd never considered him as somebody who could do that. And once he did, he has an ability to hurt her in a way where she felt she was invulnerable. Mm -hmm. And that's really tough. And she doesn't want to admit that, in my view, but it's there. It's one of those big, big, obvious things in front of your face. Absolutely. I don't think anyone expected him to do that. He seems like such a noodle, you know, in so many ways. But the very end of the scene is also, I think, the most heartbreaking. They stay in bed together, holding each other's hands, even after they decide to call it quits. That was a devastating moment. And you could, it actually felt like, I feel like everyone's had one of those moments when you break up with someone and then you're, Mm. nobody leaves kind of thing. Nobody flounces out or says something dramatic and slams the door. How do you manage to make us laugh at these characters and also be like, oh, how sad, how deeply, profoundly sad? I think most of it would, if I tried to explain it, would be post-rationalization. I think Mm -hmm. we feel it out in the writing, sometimes in the writer's room. And, you know, we're not total pure story nights Mm -hmm. you know we do have like an eye on is it going to be an episode which edges too much towards the comic if we have too much of this storyline and i wouldn't be beyond saying maybe it'd be nice to visit shiv and tom but i think the truth is the way that the last season ended one was fascinated in what had happened in this relationship and it Mm -hmm. would have felt like you'd been shortchanged as a viewer if you didn't know where they stood and so that was and, and i think we had something really I think, interesting to say about where they stood. So it it had to get included. I think at certain times in the edit, I was like, is this a bit too much of a tonal disjuncture? And it is, in some ways, you could say added on to the story at the Mm -hmm. end. I think it makes a complete piece of storytelling. But maybe it's one that, you know, is that's only apparent if you've seen the other seasons. Frank, is there a proclivity to want to make something dramatic happen here? You've seen so many things where people do betray each other and they have it out. And maybe because we're so sort of hopped up on soap operas and Dynasty and all those shows where, the, you know, they end up in the fountain wrestling. You mean, theoretically, another version of that scene where they're, you know, throwing things at each other, at least metaphorically. Yeah. Sure, it could have been done that way, but I think, I do think what makes our show special is that we try to avoid the obvious turns while being true to the characters. And these characters are so, both Tom and Shivers are so interesting. I mean, you know, she's the woman among these brutish men in her family, and he's this interloper, you know, this kind of Fitzgeraldian figure from, literally from, you know, the same part of the country as as uh, Scott Fitzgerald, and sort of out of his element, but trying to master it, and some, and, and now has mastered it to some extent. And so all those, all those subtleties within those characters would be, I think, turned into something much cruder and less real Mm -hmm. if we felt they had to go through a certain prescribed form of marital or story drama based on what happened in the finale of last Mm -hmm. season. Yeah, the whimper was a good choice. So my last uh, question is about favorite lines. You you all are writing like crazy. I can feel it. You're like, oh, this one's going out. This one's, we only got so many episodes. We want to get them all in. And it went to some heavy places, but these lines are so funny. I would love to know, you You have a very favorite line from this episode? Can you remember one? 
I like it when, and it's because of his performance. I like it when um, Brian says, "I've got my fucking suspicions about um, oh. about life after death." And, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I, I like that. Yeah, that's a really good line. I like um, Carrie. Uh, actually, had a couple of good uh, lines, and I thought she delivered them really well. One was, "We're not a fucking Shake Shack, Greg. This isn't a pre-fuck party. It's a birthday party." And then, "What's her full name?" Bridget Random Fuck. <laughs> Did you meet her on the apps? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot <laughs> yeah. of those. I just laughed my ass off when I was watching this. <laughs> anyway, I really appreciate you both being here. I'm excited to talk to you for the rest of the season and the podcast. I'm excited to be doing this podcast and, uh, and more to come. There's This is quite a packed season. Thank you for doing it and your enthusiasm. I love it. Thank really you. Appreciate it. It's really nice and lovely to hear you enjoying the stuff. Uh, you know, we worked really hard yeah. and I'm really pleased. It was, and, I, and I love it when people laugh because it should be funny. I appreciate <laughs> it. Thank you so much, Jesse and Frank. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now it's time to dive deep into the real world of succession. And today we're pulling back the curtain on Kendall, Shiv, and Roman's plans to be, quote, media disruptors. Joining me now is Ben Smith, former editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News, previously a media columnist at the New York Times, and currently co-founder of the news site Semaphore. Good to have you here. It's great to be here with you, Kara. So fun to watch that episode. Well, I needed a, a media entrepreneur that wasn't myself or, you know, whatever. So I, you have just recently started one. Let's start with the show. In this premiere, Kendall, Roman, and Shiv plan their next business venture, and it's a thing called The Hundred, which totally is exactly how it should sound. Let's listen to their design meeting where they're trying to find a good look for The Hundred. No. No, that's... No. That's a, no, that's a hard no. In terms of what we need for our new venture, The Hundred, they're... They're, they're shitty. They're, they're, they're shitty. They're shitty. We can just be honest here, right? The Hundred is... Substack meets Masterclass meets The Economist meets The New Yorker. I feel like we said iconic and you guys are leaning ironic. Oh, dear. Oh, that was so beautiful. <laughs> it was beautiful. Yes. Um, so the hundred is Substack meets Masterclass meets The Economist meets The New Yorker. Do you know what that means? Yeah, it's weird because that was my pitch for Semaphore. Oh, was it? Oh, nice. No, no, yeah, no, no. no. But there is this thing they say in there that in that same scene, I think, that was mm-hmm. like exactly... The thing that, like, the worst instinct in in media startups, but also the thing that everybody thinks, which is, like, no one is doing this. They must all be such idiots. This space for doing my, our economist meets Substack thing is so wide open. Mm -hmm. And, like, we just see it and nobody else sees it. And the reason this doesn't exist is because we're the only geniuses as opposed to... Like, maybe it's super hard, and that's why nobody is doing that's it. That's correct. That's great. What, what do you make of the idea? Are they on to something here? Or is it just – we? Have, I have been in so many meetings like this with media startup people. You know, what they're on to is what a certain kind of billionaire investor is interested in. When you're trying to create something like The 100 or Semaphore or whatever, what's the most important thing to avoid? Obviously – this reeks of three spoiled wealthy kids who are looking to something to fill the void in their life. Kendall at one point even says, I need something absorbing in my life. And if this isn't going to be it, please just let me know. Talk about that, that, you know, when you're trying to do it versus sort of the dilettantes, because there was plenty of dilettantes in the media space. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to be obsessed with an actual audience and you have to kind of love the news. And and mm-hmm. I think that, you know, and, and the substance of what you're making, like, you know, the difference between a great reporter or, you know, or a great screenwriter, mm-hmm. these are crafts basically. Mm-hmm. And, so, and you have to just have really love that. And it's, and I think the ones that fail or that don't make sense are often either keyed 
toward investors, really, mm-hmm. and are like, you know, essentially built to have a business model that is selling shares in the companies rather than selling advertising or subscriptions. And then also, as you say, the vanity of -hmm. the founders. I mean, not that, you know, you and I have the world's smallest egos, Mm -hmm. but ultimately like there is a kind of startup that revolves entirely around the vanity of the proprietor or the star that makes it then, it makes it really, it makes it really hard place to work and navigate. One of the things, um, I'm just wondering if any, I've tried to rack my brain for how many big media companies were started by rich kids who got bored. Many, many, many media companies are, you know, it's not, the, I mean, as you say, and I don't mean this actually disparagingly, like it's not the highest ROI business in the world. Right. It's not the lowest risk business in the world. And so usually people invest in media, including in media businesses that are great, they're really good businesses, mm-hmm. aren't doing it because they have conducted a cold-eyed analysis of the entire universe of places they could put a dollar. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they're doing it because they're interested in the world, they think it's good for the world, or they want power and influence, or a number of other motives. And so it's always complicated. Yeah, or like Jeff Bezos with the Washington Post, et cetera. Do you think the 100 could ever actually satisfy these characters and make them happy? Do you think it? there's a number of rich people we know that have bought things, Mark Benioff at Time Magazine, The Atlantic now, which is doing a lot better. That's where they're going instead of buying a sports team. But does this satisfy them? Why do this? I mean, I think some of them really love it. I think the risk is for, you know, like, like at The Post, like at the LA Times, the idea of saving the Washington Post is so compelling and important and great. The day-to-day of saving the Washington Post is like grinding out verticalized ad sales and building, you know, a great DC mm-hmm. restaurant coverage and stuff mm-hmm. that is like, I think basically below Jeff Bezos's pay grade. Mm-hmm. But when you've got Jeff Bezos owned in the place, the professional management doesn't feel the level of panic required at all times to run a media yeah. business. Right, right. That's a fair point. So, and neither do Roman, Shiv, and Kendall. Yeah, that's the problem. They don't stay focused very long because the minute they could abandon it, they do. They change course and set their eyes on a media acquisition, Pierce, which feels like the New York Times, and it turns into a bidding war. Let's listen to a moment of that. Listen, this is, um, this is very confusing. And I don't want to talk numbers. It's not about the numbers. Totally. Totally. Shall we just say our number, though? Just see if that makes any sense. Oh, I don't like this. Makes me feel like I'm in the middle of a bidding war. Horrible. Different people saying different numbers. Eight, nine. What's next? I know, so confusing. What comes after nine? Nine B? <laughs> oh, this is so good. She's a master. So fabulous. Talk about reporting on bidding wars like this and how a bidding war for a company like say the the New York Times was in play and it was like the Wall Street Journal had been in play, if you remember with the family. And I remember several, uh, this is so sordid saying to me, I'm like, oh, you're all going to get rich. Really? It's just a newspaper. Sell it to Murdoch. It's fine. Um, Talk about that um, when when you're covering this kind of stuff in the media. I mean, I do think that these generational family companies are so interesting because you know, it's just the nature of it. You have three kids, you, mm-hmm. you know, you're the, you're the proprietor, each of them gets a third, each of them has three kids. And suddenly there's a lot of stakeholders a couple generations down. Mm-hmm. The Times has devised this very complex trust. And I think actually one of the great reporting challenges in media, which I have not cracked, is getting inside those conversations, inside the family conversations. Like what were, what, you know, what were they saying inside the New York Times family when James Bennett got asked at the op-ed page? That's a story nobody's reported because they're hard to get at. I think at Dow Jones, what had happened when Murdoch bought it was that like 
family ownership had splintered so far that there were mm-hmm. just all these people who had inherited a chunk of it, but really felt no connection. Right. And, um, and ultimately, you know, wanted the income. What is your take on the kids strategy here? Do you think Pierce is a smart acquisition? Because they're kind of buying an old style kind of thing. Not that you can't make something of it, obviously. These are great brands. Yeah, actually, I think like this is a moment when I feel like I'm realizing belatedly how much value these old brands have. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, CNN is just this massively valuable thing. They've, cre- you know, it's the, it is this globally trusted, I agree. massive brand that people like us aspire to building over decades. And, you know, even if you sort of look around the landscape at places like Time and even Newsweek, which were left totally mm-hmm. for dead, run into the ground by the crazy, you know, just in the, if you were like trying to figure out how to destroy a publication, it would be Newsweek. Mm-hmm. And yet zombie Newsweek kind of like turned it into an okay business in its way. And I think people, mm-hmm. these brand, these old brands have resonance and trust like far beyond what like we startup people of the aughts imagined. Yeah. They also want to put a sheen on themselves because they're kind of ATN and kind of scummy. And then they buy sort of Rupert Murdoch buying the Times of London, right? That it adds a little bit of fanciness beyond the stuff you own. Yeah, and broadens the portfolio of your kind of influence that you exercise politically too, sometimes. Right, right. That's the op- it's the sort of counterweight to ATN and the rest of the things they own. Um, at many points during the sequence, Nan and Tom and Logan all say the negotiation isn't about the number. Is that ever any truth when people say that? I, I assume it's always about the number. You know, I guess in my experience, for the same reason that people are in the media business, that you know, that it's not the highest return on investment thing they could have done with their dollars. Mm-hmm. The thing with some of these families is it's their only source of wealth. And you can't eat influence, can you? You can't eat influence. Exactly. But I do think that for the kind, you know, for the dilettante, which I, you know, and maybe that's kind of a harsh word for the mm-hmm. amateur billionaire who owns a media thing and wants it to do well and at some point realizes they can't quite figure out how to run it. Mm -hmm. No, I think they actually like often aren't looking to maximize their return. They're looking to like uh, like get it off their books in a way that doesn't make them feel bad about themselves and hand it gently to somebody else. And if that person destroys it, fine. But like it's blood isn't on their hands. Talk to me just very briefly about the, the billionaires and the wealthy people buying them. Their motivation are they always the same? They want to help journalism? They just don't, I mean, I, they just happen to like it. Is there something in common between these rich people that don't buy the typical things you expect them, like a mega yacht or a sports team, et cetera? I think it's very broadly distributed. I mean, I think the thing is the, the nature of the kind of wealth that's been generated in the last 20 years means that like a bunch of kind of random people mm-hmm. are wealthy beyond previous imagining. And they're a very diverse range of people. Like some of them are right wing and some are left wing and some are geniuses who could repeat it. And some are totally random people who were roommates with a genius. And so I think there's, it's a little hard to generalize. I do think there's a huge difference between the Logan Roy's and the Rupert Murdoch's who made their money in the media business, mm-hmm. see it with cold eyes as a business and are total sharks and the people who see it as a calling and a cause. And I would say, you know, ultimately, you'd rather work for the former. Yes, I would agree. The news business, which is the one I know best, is at its best when you are under intense pressure to reach an audience, to grab people by the lapel and tell them something important. And it works worst when your boss is somebody who's like, you know what, I'm so proud to be associated with your important work you're doing. And then you go write a bunch of boring op-eds. Yeah, that's a fair point. Okay, all right, good. It's also funny to me that Roman, Shiv, and Kendall have no real conception of money, of course. They're throwing out these huge, that was the one part, you know, nine, 10, these huge numbers, no concept (laughs) of what it means. Numbers do move around like that. Mm -hmm. I think when you follow 
the sales of big companies. I mean, you you know, there's all sorts of earnings multiples and hyper rational calculations, and then you get into bidding wars, and the numbers can go up a lot. Do you think the kids are doing this business warfare as sort of a fun game? It's ego, isn't it? I mean, I think I think the show captures that so well that they win but they lose at the same time. Last question: Who do you think the smartest power player in the show is, and who are you rooting for? I mean, Logan Roy is so vastly, it seems to me, the, the smartest mm-hmm. power player in the show. Although I suppose that uh, Nan mm-hmm. kind of gets hers, right? Do you root for him, though? Gosh, is that terrible that I root no, for you him? No, you can, you can say it. It's you hard to root it. for the kids, right? Yeah. They're yeah, so you're like, loathsome. Uh-huh. So Logan Roy, you're a Logan Roy man. Well, that's where I we're going to leave it. At the end of the day, I am, Of yeah. course you are. I'm not surprised in any way, Ben, Semaphore uh, Smith. I can't believe you brought that out of me. I didn't even know it myself. <laughs> you got to take go. a hard look in the mirror. <laughs> no, it's okay. You can like them. Villains are very attractive. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, Kara. This is fun. Well, folks, I'm excited for this final season. I mean, as life without Waystar Royco closes in on our characters, they could have so much free time. I mean, if they're not fighting to be CEO of Waystar, what will they even do? Actually run a company? I guess we'll have to see. I want to thank my guest, Ben Smith, co-founder of the new media venture Semaphore, and of course, Frank Rich, executive producer of Succession, and Jesse Armstrong, the creator of Succession. Next week, we'll be back to talk about episode two and the next stage of this Roy family civil war. New episodes of the podcast come out every Sunday night after the latest episode of Succession airs on HBO and HBO Max. Make sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Why would you? The official HBO Succession podcast is a production of HBO and Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Barry Finkel and Gabrielle Lewis. Our producers are Elliot Adler, Ben Goldberg, and Noah Camuso. Our editor is Darby Maloney. Engineering and mixing by Hannes Brown. Production music is courtesy of HBO. Special thanks to Michael Gluckstadt, Kenya Reyes, and Savon Slater at HBO Podcasts. And I am, of course, Kara Swisher. We'll see you next week. And until then, remember, if you aren't careful... It's gonna fucking gut you like a rainbow trout. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Agnello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.